So we're going to be in Exodus 20. You can go ahead and turn there if you want, as we all have been throughout this series, been in Exodus 20, talking about the ninth commandment. We, all, all people of all time, have placed a high premium on the truth. The truth is a big deal to all of us. I mean, just think about it. Like years ago, a couple decades ago, the entire country is consumed over the topic of whether or not a president told the truth when an affair was brought to question. Not so much the affair itself, but did he tell the truth or not? And whenever Lance Armstrong and any number of professional baseball players get nailed for taking steroids, we are outraged because they lied to us about it. They took steroids and said that they didn't, and then they got caught, and they were outraged about that. It doesn't bother us so much that they're bad husbands or they're womanizers or they're lousy fathers, but if you lie about steroids, then we're going to be infuriated, right? We, we get morally incensed when people like that lie to us. I mean, we're, we're to a place now to where you can win the presidency as a crass, vulgar, philandering adulterer with no experience if you're perceived to be a straight shooter or telling it like it is. We put a high premium on the truth. Sometimes a lopsided, but we put a high premium on the truth. And everyone lies at the same time, everyone is outraged when they are lied to. Nobody, everybody hates it being lied to. We live in a world racked with the tension between the truth and lies. And fake news incurs our full, unhindered outrage. Fake news. But how honest are you about reporting your own life? Was your vacation really as glamorous as you said it was on Twitter? Does everybody in your family really smile that much? As it says on Facebook, is your, is your, is your home life really as pristine as Instagram says? Now, I mean, social media would not exist at the level of clout that it does today if it was an endless stream of the unfiltered truth. Because nobody wants to see pictures and videos of screaming kids and broken plumbing and committee meetings. Though that is the truth. So this truth, I mean, we are, we are, Relentless about the truth, even though we're not so great at reporting it, that our own inconsistency in truth-telling does not negate the validity of the fact that we place a premium on the truth. It is of utmost importance to us. Thus, the ninth commandment looms large with all of us, all people everywhere. We have systems put in place culturally and society to protect against lies because the, the believability, the trust in human relationships is necessary for the welfare of society. If everybody's always lying and I have no way to figure that out, then you can't do anything. You can't build buildings. You can't police yourself. You can't have an economy. You can't do anything. So we have systems in place to check the truth. Right? When you swear in to testify at a court, what are you saying you're going to do? Tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And... When you have contracts signed, why do we have to sign contracts? I told you I would build that thing, so trust me. You know, your word's not good enough. I want to make sure that you do what you said you were going to do, that what you said was the truth. So we have contracts and contract lawyers. Our own Joe Benningfield, he engages in polygraph tests to be able to scientifically tell whether or not a statement is true or false because we just think you're a liar. 
And employers, when they're hiring anybody, the process to be hired is layered with truth checking. You can't get hired without going through this process. Are you on drugs? I don't believe you. Take a drug test. Are you a felon? I don't believe you. Run a background check. Did you graduate college? I don't believe you. Submit a transcript. Did you really work at those places? I don't believe you. I'm going to call references. So we have layers in. Your word isn't good enough. The ninth commandment is all around us because it's innate within us. Romans 1, 18 through 19 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. People innately know what is true about God because God has coded it into them. And then they suppress that truth, calling it not true. So it's all around us, this ninth commandment. And we as the people of God, we know that we are in a war for the truth against a real enemy. John 8, 44, Jesus repudiating the Pharisees tells us about this enemy. says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's our enemy. Very much so, we are in a war for the truth and we have a common enemy who is the father of lies that has no truth within him whatsoever. Revelation 12, 9 says that Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. And we also know this about the supernatural realm that Jesus, our Savior, is the manifestation of the truth. John 1, 14 says that he is full of grace and truth. John 14, 6, when he's talking to his own disciples, he says, I am the way, the truth, definite article, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the truth. Revelation 19, 11, and depicting what it's going to look like when he comes back, says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is Jesus, and it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His name is True. When he comes at the end to make all things right, he is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the same. He is the spirit of truth, according to John 16, 13. And he says that he's going to lead the apostles into all the truth. He's the leader into the truth. He is truth. The premium that all people have for the truth stems from the very law of God. We do that. We have this premium, this priority of the truth because we are made in God's image, and that's how we bear, a way we bear his image. The, the ninth commandment is a bedrock against lies, and it is our moral foundation for the truth. So let's look at it. Exodus 20, verse 16, says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's the command. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the moral precept that the core of this commandment is the sanctity of the truth. That's the core of it. There is the sanctity, a sanctity of the truth. And God is not a dishonest being. Therefore, those made in his image who are called his adopted sons and daughters must not be dishonest towards one another because God cannot lie, according to Titus 
1, 2. And he, God delights in the truth, according to Proverbs 12, 22. And God is true, and there is no falsehood in him, according to John 7, 18. God is the truth. Truth exudes from him. The ninth commandment has to be this blunt because we break it so easily. Psalm 1, 16, 11 says, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. All mankind are liars. That's straightforward. You can't get around that one. We're so inclined to break this commandment. Alistair Begg, pastor in uh, Ohio, guy I admire and look up to and listen to because he has a Scottish accent, and why would you not listen to that? Uh, he said, we sin most easily in our words. And we do. We sin so easily in our words. Kids learn to lie really early. By at least two, you've got a full-on liar with you. At least two, if not before that. And you can see the little wheels of sin turning in their brains the first time they're going to lie to you. Because oh, before that, they just honestly confess everything. Did you break that? Yep. And then they get spent. You're like, oh, wait a minute. And then you ask them, hey, did you take all those clothes out of that drawer and throw them all over the floor? And the wheels start turning. They think, I wasn't supposed to do that. I normally say yes, and I get in trouble. No. They kind of like, they always kind of look slide. No. They don't say it real authoritatively the first few times. Uh, no, I didn't. I'm like, I'm looking at the evidence right here. You did it. You lied. And then they get in trouble. And then they, then they lie about things that don't even matter. They're not even in trouble over this. Who moved my shoes? Did you move my shoes? Nope. And then the other sibling goes, yes, he did. He moved them. And they're like, well, <laughs> honey, do you smell something smoky in here? I think somebody's pants are on fire because we have a liar in our midst. You weren't even in trouble now, but now you're going to have to get in trouble because you lied. We lie so easily. Nobody has to teach any kid, any person, anywhere how to lie. We just do it to the sin within us. And it's so easy because our own hearts lie to us. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things, but be not afraid. Those who are in Christ have a different heart. Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be with their God. And they will be my people. The Bible Bible's replete with examples of people lying or telling non-truths and then it being immediately condemned by Scripture. Genesis 3, right? Satan, the serpent to Eve, what's the lie? You will not surely die. You're not going to die if you eat that fruit. Then the next chapter, Cain kills his brother Abel. God says, where is your brother? He says, I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? He lies. And then Acts chapter 5 Fast forward a good bit, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell some land. They go to Peter, the head of the church, and say, here's the money from the land that we sold. Peter says, is this all the money? And Ananias goes, yes. But it wasn't all the money, and God strikes him down right there. Sapphira, his wife, comes in right after and said, hey, was this all the money from the land that you sold? She says, yes. Strikes it down right there. We're not getting into that story, but that lying, he says, you did not lie to me, but you lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. That's repudiated. That's punished right there in time and in space. So there it is. Anytime that a non-truth is ever told, it's condemned as sin and must be repented of. Any non-truth telling is repudiated by God. Let's close our Bibles and just pray and go home.
shortest sermon of the year. But if you know your Bible, then something is irking you right now. Because I said any non-truth telling is repudiated by God and something that needs to be repented of. And if you read your Bible frequently, then you have some bells going off. What about the Exodus chapter 1, Hebrew midwives? Pharaoh says, hey, kill all the baby boys when they're born, and they don't do it. Pharaoh says, did you kill all the baby boys that were born? They say yes. They don't, they don't get in trouble for that. What about in 1 Samuel 21, David is running for his life from Saul, and he's starving, so he goes to the temple, and Ahimelech is in there, and he says, hey, what are you doing in here, David? I was like, oh, I'm on a mission from Saul. Can I have that bread? Lies. Nothing happens to him. There's no, like, judgment called down. There's no, like, and David lied, and that was bad. And then the worst one, the one for me that sticks out the most is Rahab and Joshua 2. The spies come into the land. Joshua sends them in to spy out the promised land. They go to Jericho. They somehow find Rahab, and then king gets whiff of spies in the land. He sends men to her house, and she says, yeah, they were here, but I don't know who they were, and now they're gone as they sit under hay on her roof. She lies to those people, and nothing happens. In fact, good things are said about her. How is it that we've always told that story, and we're like, see, God can redeem even a prostitute, and God can, anybody who aligns with God and humbly comes to him will be saved. Look at Rahab. She's not even a, she's not even a Jew. She's a Gentile. And she gets saved. We'll tell that story to everybody, to our kids, and we never talk about her lie. But she did lie. She told a non-truth that deceived other people. And then, so how is it that Hebrews and James, two books in the New Testament, can speak so highly of her and call her righteous? Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies, but she lied. How was that not something that was disobedient and worthy of punishment? James 2, 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, which she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? But she lied. How is that an action in keeping with justification, with keeping of salvation from God? How is that the same. How do we make that square? And what's even grander than all of these is in Matthew chapter 1, that in the lineage of Jesus, she's there mentioned by name. Matthew 1, 5 and 6. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. Just to get you to David so you know this is Jesus' lineage. Rahab's in there. So in the lineage of the one who is faithful and true, who is the truth, who truth is in him and there is no falsehood, a liar is his great to the whatever power grandmother. A liar gets grafted in. Gentile, breaker of the ninth commandment, Gentile prostitute liar is in the lineage of Jesus. Nobody says anything about her deception. How is that the case? What are we to do as the people of God? We got to wrestle with this. Whenever we see a contradiction in Scripture, we should get excited that you're about to learn something. Because it's not that the Bible contradicts itself, it's that my understanding is limited currently. Let's put in the word. Because let's say an atheist gets a hold of Joshua 2 and Exodus 20 and says your Bible's inconsistent. Your, your God glorifies liars but says you can't lie. 
We need to have answers for that because there are answers for that. So let's be a people of the book and go look at this because it wasn't as if we can just easily say, Rahab just kind of backed into it. She just kind of stumbled. it. She kind of just played dumb. So that's, that's what she did. She didn't do that. She straight up told a deception. Look at Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, they met, the men went out. And I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly and you will overtake them. She lies. Yeah, they came, but I don't know who they were. We'll find out later she does know who they were. And they're not here now. They're gone. They went out. And they're up on a roof. So how do we reconcile this? We are in an ethical conundrum this morning now. How do we make sense of this? Either God doesn't care if you violate the ninth commandment, if it's for a good reason, or Rahab didn't violate the ninth commandment. One of those two things is going to have to be true. We're dealing with the truth. So let's ask ourselves this question. Was Rahab doomed to sin no matter what she said to the king's men when they came? She says, yes, they're here. So she violates God and gets God's people killed. So that's sinning against God. Or no, they're not. And that's breaking the ninth commandment. So then she's lied and she, she sinned. Either way, she was going to sin no matter what. She was forced to choose the lesser sin for the greater good. Is that what happened? Well, there are people who hold to that ideology for morality that there is called, it's called conflicting absolutism, that God has moral precepts and there are many moral absolute truths and sometimes they come into conflict. And what we are to do is to choose the lesser one and God's grace will cover it. But there's several problems with that. One of the problems being in that the moral authority is within us. I have to choose between what is lesser and what is greater? Me, a flawed human being, I'm choosing that? Not God? God hasn't clearly laid out a path for me, so there's a problem with that. What about Christians hiding Jews in Nazi Germany during World War II? When they lie, when they're asked, are you hiding anybody? They say, no. Are they breaking the ninth commandment? Are they deciding between breaking the sixth commandment versus breaking the ninth commandment? Oh, do I coincide with murder or do I... Just lie. Well, it seems like lying's less, so I'll do that one. Do God's morals absolute conflict, and we just have to choose the lesser one? I think the greatest evidence against that is Jesus' own humanity. Because Jesus is said to have never sinned, according to Hebrews 4. And Jesus is also believed by all of us as Christians, evangelically, that Jesus was fully human. And Jesus was tempted in every way that we are tempted. So either Jesus wasn't fully human and never had to make a lesser sin decision, or we're up a creek. We have to decide, like, what is, what is going on? That, that, that we must have a decision. If Jesus didn't sin, 
Therefore, he wasn't fully human. And what he doesn't take on, he doesn't redeem. So if he doesn't take on full humanity, he doesn't redeem full humanity, and you or I are still dead in our sins. So we can't have that. Jesus had to be fully man. But Jesus cannot sin and has not sinned. So how are we going to make that? Obviously, there must be another explanation for this. So let's look back at the text. What is actually stated in the ninth commandment? What does it actually say? Exodus 20, verse 16 says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We always shorten it to you shall not lie. Even in our little video, we shorten it to you shall not lie. But that's not what it says. What it says is you shall not bear false witness against a neighbor. That's the ninth commandment. So we got to look at that. Is, is, is it a violation of the ninth commandment to ever say anything that is untrue? So in seventh grade, my football coach, Warren Grody, he was a redneck and funny as all get out, but he loved trick plays. So we would practice trick plays all the time. And we had this one that he loved more than anything. And I forgot the name of it. It was probably something like the raccoon switch or something like that. He always came up with weird names. But what happens when we, this is what, how it would go. Every Thursday night, we'd run this at least once. I would be a quarterback lined up and have two running backs behind me and then everybody else lined up in front of me. The sidelines over there. So Coach Grody, this is what he does. He would yell out from the sidelines, hey, Stuart, what play did you call? And I would be like, uh, I don't know, like the I-45 corridor? I'd just make up some name every time. Make up some name. And he'd go, no, 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 no. He would get really into the acting, like he's really mad at me for calling the wrong play. He would go, no, 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 no. Come here, come here. And so then I would go over to the sideline towards him on a straight line. Because if you know football, all these coaches out here writing this down, you're just a man in motion now. But so I'm just going in motion from the quarterback position in this grand charade of going to get a new play from the coach and then go back and call the right play. But that was never the plan. Oh, no, no. This was junior high deception. We would go over there, and as soon as I got about a foot from the sideline, they would snap the ball to the running back and then I would just run out, catch a pass wide open because everybody else is going, oh, he's just getting in trouble. So they're not watching me or guarding me in any way. And if Scott Fulton can throw a spiral, then we're in money. Then we're, we're going to get six points out of this deal. But what was I doing? Was I violating the ninth commandment? Because there's several violations potentially there. Because I call a play, we're running a trick play, raccoon swamble, or whatever it is, and then we break the huddle. Then we line up and the coach says, what play did you call? I say something different. Audible, loud, non-truth telling. Everybody heard it. Everybody on my team knows it. And then I come over there under the charade of I'm going to go and talk to my coach. But that's a lie. My lying actions are saying something so that I can get advantage over the other team. So every single Thursday night in seventh grade in the months of football, was I violating the ninth commandment? Is any non-truth-telling lying? Let's, let's define what would the violation be of the ninth commandment. What is lying according to the ninth commandment? Lying is the malicious distortion of what is true for selfish gain or the harm of another. So lying in violation of the ninth commandment is the malicious distortion of what is true for selfish gain or the harm of another. Because bearing false witness against a neighbor, there is a victim in this sin. 
So now let's use that definition and work from it because the verbatim wording of the ninth commandment plainly involves untruth negatively affecting somebody else. Shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So like with all the other commandments, there's an immediate context. There's an immediate context where it fits in Old Testament culture. And this is the courtroom scene. Bear false witness, right? You're on the stand against somebody else. So therefore, this cannot be victimless because nobody's on trial against nothing or against no person or against an idea or some other nebulous thing. It's always against a person. So if I'm bearing false witness, then I'm hurting somebody else or gaining for me some way. So bearing false witness is a courtroom scene. This is how Israel functioned under the Old Testament because, and this is how they always did. This was a daily thing. It wasn't like long, drawn-out jail times and then courtroom. It was everyday dispute settlement between people within the nation of Israel. And Moses is handling it all by himself up until Exodus 18. In Exodus 18, his father-in-law, Jethro, shows up and says, Moses, you're going to kill yourself doing this. you got to recruit some help. So then he gets some quality guys who then are called elders, and they can hear disputes from amongst their own tribes amongst the people. And if it gets a big enough problem, they go up to Moses. So this is happening all the time. They would go and sit at the gates of the city. The elders would sit at the gates and just hear the disputes. So bearing false witness, lying in that context, is inherently going to hurt somebody else. In fact, a false witness and repeated false witnesses can undo society as they know it. Because you're just up there, eyewitness accounts, all you got. You don't have forensics, you don't have CSI. It's all eyewitness stuff. So a false witness can undo everything. It's inherently against another person, a malicious distortion of the truth for selfish gain or for the harm of another. And there are no victimless versions of this. And this could carry up to the, the death penalty. And that's a good sign, at, well, of it being a moral absolute that it, that it continues on for us is because it could carry the death penalty. In Deuteronomy 19, this is what it says, where Deuteronomy often comments and elaborates on the punishments and benefits of keeping the law versus breaking the law. And the Ten Commandments are chief among them. So in Deuteronomy 19, verse 16 It says, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So whatever that guy was trying to do to you by lying, you're going to do to them. So if you're trying to get that guy convicted of murder, then the death penalty falls on you as a false witness. So this is a, this is a heavy idea. And just like all other moral laws that we see in the Old Testament, specifically the Ten Commandments, that they have implications outside of their immediate context. So we saw last week, honor your father and mother has implications outside of that context to all human authority. God has sanctified all human authority. And the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, extends to all sexual interactions that are outside of the biblical definition of marriage. 
So then, therefore, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor extends past the courtroom scene to any untruth that hurts your neighbor. So then, circle back, did Rahab violate the ninth commandment by doing what she did? Did she violate it by telling the untruth to the king of Jericho? According to this definition and according to the ninth commandment, no. She did not. Her untruth did not harm her neighbors, and she did not selfishly gain anything. What she did gain was eternal life by rejecting the patterns of the world and clinging to God through alliance to his people. Her motives in telling an untruth was the fear of the Lord. Look at what she says in her own words in Joshua 2, 9 through 11. And said to the men, she came to them and said to the men on the roof, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the sea before you when you came out of Egypt. She heard that and believed that and attributed that to God. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. She believed God to be behind that and him to be powerful and his people to be respected. And then verse 11, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, she uses the tetragrammaton name for the Lord, Yahweh. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She confesses with her mouth the supremacy of God. He is God. So I'm not going to bear allegiance to my people rebelling against him and his agenda. So her heart in telling that untruth comes from a heart of submission to God. So if she doesn't violate it, then neither did Christians in Nazi Germany during World War II when they said, no, I don't have any Jews in here, or I'm just lying by the structure of my house by putting up things that look like walls that aren't walls. So they aren't guilty of breaking the ninth commandment. And they were not in a position of choosing, do I violate the sixth or the ninth? So do I contribute with murder or do I bear false witness? They weren't in that tension. That tension didn't exist for them. We believe what's called non-conflicting absolutism, that God's laws, moral absolutes, do not ever reach a point where they are going to conflict with each other, that in order to obey God, I'm going to have to disobey God in some lesser way, that that cannot happen. That's what we believe, that that cannot happen, that obedience to one law will never necessitate disobedience to another law. Because as Christians, we have promises that that is true. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, being chief among them. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and we will not be allowed to tempted beyond what you are able, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may endure it. Will God's provided way of escape ever be sin? Hey, you're dealing with something that's really bad, but here's a lesser sin that you can do that only a little bit of grace is going to have to cover. God's way of escape can't ever be sin. He can't ever lead anyone into sin. And we know that to be true because we have James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
So his way of escape is never going to be sin because he cannot lead anybody into sin. And we also have the incarnation of Christ telling us that God's moral absolutes don't conflict either. Look at Hebrews 4, 14. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So either that verse is a lie or Jesus had to sin. He's tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Then he wasn't human if some point, sometime, we're going to have to choose to sin in a lesser way. The very humanity of Christ rides on this. The ninth commandment is a gospel issue by necessity. There is no lesser sin that Jesus had to do to maintain the greater good. So either he wasn't human or he did sin. And we say, no, he was human and he didn't sin. Dr. David Jones, I've been using his book a lot for this. He's a smart guy, wrote a lot of great things about the Ten Commandments. He says, if God is absolute and non-contradictory, then his moral norms ought to be absolute and non-contradictory. If God's laws have the potential to collide in conflict at any point for any of us, then that means that there was conflict and confusion in the mind of God. He wasn't smart enough to figure out a way to give social and moral norms and maxims without making them run across each other every now and then. Or his own character isn't pure enough to have to be fully truthful and fully non-murderous. That just can't be in the person of God. So in applying this commandment, though, let me be abundantly clear it is exceedingly rare that any lie is not a violation of the ninth commandment. So you kids in here are going, yes, I found a way to lie to my parents. Pastor said so. I can figure it out. No, 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 no. It is exceedingly rare that any untruth is not a violation of the ninth commandment. Exceedingly rare. Like it may not ever happen in your lifetime rare that you're put in this position to have to tell this kind of untruth, like Rahab or like Nazi Germany. Exceedingly rare. The reason we traveled down that road is because Scripture took us there. And we're not being faithful students of God's Word who want to apply God's Word if we don't hunt down every seeming possible contradiction and make it reconcile, because it does. So we went down that road with Rahab because Scripture led us there. We needed to see that that there is a tension there, but it is resolved by definition, and that this is a gospel issue because Jesus needed to be flesh and blood just like us to be able to save us because if he doesn't assume all that we are, he cannot save all that we are. So he had to be fully human, and he had to be perfectly sinless because God can't accept anything less than that as a sacrifice. So this is inherently a gospel issue. All the Scripture points to Christ wrestling with the ninth commandment and Rahab took us to the gospel. But the ninth commandment does have serious implications for us today. Is exaggerating a story a violation of the ninth commandment? It depends. Are you gaining anything selfishly over another person? Are you putting anybody down by exaggerating in that way? Is excessive flattery a violation of the ninth commandment? It depends. Are you just puffing up your boss so you can manipulate him into giving you a promotion? 
Or are you just flattering that person because you know something's coming that's going to just knock them off the high horse and you want to put them up as high as you possibly can so it hurts more? So it depends. Is sarcasm a violation of the ninth commandment? Because that's a straight-up opposite. You're telling a lie as the truth. Is that a violation? It depends. Are you trying to look as funny and selfish gain and be as cool as you want to be? Or are you trying to hurt somebody else by saying that or make them look dumb? It depends. Is, is rejecting, is denying Jesus at the threat of persecution a violation of the ninth commandment? Peter does that straight up. says, I don't even know that guy. So there are real and heavy implications for us today. And bottom line is, you and I lie way too easily and way too frequently. It's so easy. And this is one of those times where the application is so simple, but it remains so profound. The application is stop lying. That's it. Stop lying. Hate the lies in your own mouth as much as you hate them in some politician's mouth. Hate the little non-truths that you tell just as much as you hated Tom Brady for lying about deflating footballs. We've got to hate it. We've got to meditate long on God's hatred for lies. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue. God hates it. He doesn't disapprove of it. He's not just kind of bummed out by it. God hates your lying tongue. He hates my lying tongue. We have to hate it as well. We know that that the tongue, James 3, 8, tells us that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Proverbs goes on to say that death and life are in the power of the tongue. We can do damage with these lies. We have to hate them because God hates them. Because we are a people of the truth. We are the people of the truth. We have it. Ephesians 4, and instructing God's people on how to be God's new people, the church. Ephesians 4, 25 says, therefore, having put away falsehood, you've put it away. You are God's people. You've put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We speak the truth because we are the people of the truth. We are the people who have the truth. The message of redemption through Jesus Christ and his blood spilled at Calvary is garbage if it's not true. If it's just a story, then it's worthless. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If the gospel message is not true in every possible sense of the word, then we of all people are most to be pitied. We're the most pathetic of all people if that is not absolutely true. We are a people of the truth and we are offering slaves to sin and death, freedom through Jesus Christ and his blood spilled for you as your substitution if you will believe and repent. And if that message is not true, then they will not be set free. Jesus said in John 8, 31 through 32, he said to all his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And, if you, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Father, Thank you for the truth. Thank you that you tell us in plain language 
that you cannot lie. Not that you won't or not that you usually don't, unless it's a big deal, but you cannot lie. And that our Savior is not just an excellent example. He's not just a, a, a mighty warrior for your goals. He is you. He is fully God. He is fully human and flesh that is ours. And he truly did everything that your Bible says that he did. We thank you for that. We thank you that we have real reasons and bedrock to stand on for our upholding of the truth and our repudiation of lies because we are the people of the truth. And if none will uphold the truth, we will. And we will tell the truth no matter how unpopular it is, no matter how uncomfortable it may be because we alone have the truth. Jesus, you pray for your disciples and we pray now we will be sanctified in the truth and your word is truth. Let us be those people. We thank you for showing us that your Bible doesn't contradict itself and that it can be trusted at all times and all places that it was once for all delivered to the saints. Father, give us boldness with the truth. The truth is hard to to say, but give us boldness with it because souls are dying and hell is filling and we have life. We have freedom from the bondage of sin and death. And if they will know and believe the truth and the truth will set them free, let us be the true freedom fighters because we have the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.